In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to Season 2 and Episode 11 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Let's get started with a roundup of the email. Now, firstly, I got an email from Canada from Dave, who's got in touch to share our mutual traveller fandom and to tell me about the Freelance Traveller website. Well, thanks for letting me know, Dave. I wasn't aware of that, and I'll add it into the list for a spotlight in a later episode, probably around episode 14. Neil also dropped me a line recommending a couple of things. Firstly, he commended the Mongoose version of Traveller. And frankly, that seals it. I'm going to have to grab a copy of it now to check it out. He also recommends the 101 series from the British Isles Traveller Support Group. I've taken a look at Drive Through RPG at their stuff, and it does look interesting. I've gone through a couple of their previews, and it certainly has the Traveller feel about it. So I'm definitely going to pick up some of these for review. Thanks for the tip, Neil. That's all for now, so on with the show. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is my galaxy, where I tell you about one of the planets in the Tesseso subsector. A map for this subsector can be found on the website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Quackar is an unpleasant world. It is categorised as a water world, but don't let that fool you into imagining a world with warm waters waiting for you to go for a swim. It is a cold world, a frozen world, almost a wasteland. The planet's orbit is beyond the normally acceptable range for human habitation, and, as it orbits erratically beyond an asteroid belt that often blocks what little sunlight there is, the world is beyond frigid. Its ice-covered surface, however, is home to around half a million people who manage to make a comfortable life for themselves. The starport at Quacker has all the usual features, but only provides unrefined fuel lifted from the planet. Purchasers of this fuel are advised to ensure that they do not use the fuel in its unrefined state, as the impurities are noted for their untowards effect on jump drives, although for in-system use, the fuel is unlikely to be a problem. The reason this unforgiving planet was settled at all was for the same contaminants that make the fuel supply unreliable. The ice of Quacker contains minute trace elements of a number of important elements. Not enough to make corporate mining operations viable, but enough to allow people with time on their hands to mine the ice on their own. So in came the homesteaders, and the mining began on a small scale by people who lived there and could run a mine for their entire life. It didn't take more than five generations before raiders found Quacker and started taking from the people. The planet erupted with fear and aggression in response to the first raids, and only stopped when Imperial forces arrived to protect the people from the raiders. It became necessary to install an Imperial government in order to suppress the violence and unrest. The system remains under direct Imperial governorship, which is administered from nearby Tesseso, the subsector capital. Although the people are living within a very strict system of imposed laws, they seem relatively happy and continue to live their lives without fear of the raiders. 
When jumping into the system, travellers are advised to immediately contact the local system patrol and report their presence. Failure to do so will cause patrol cruisers to be aggressively dispatched to intercept, and you will be charged the cost of that. Visitors are also warned not to leave the starport with any weapons, as carrying any form of weapon is strictly prohibited. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for another story seed. The planet Tehillim is on the outskirts of the Imperium and was colonised a millennia ago. However, it did not stay in the Imperium. For administrative reasons, it was removed from the ex-boat routes. And as it manufactured no real special trade goods, it simply fell off the map. It has only recently been put back on the map, but in the intervening years its populace has fallen back into a tribal culture. Its now primitive tribes eke out a living in the new wooden towns set amongst the rotting buildings of its previous civilization. The reason for contact being re-established is the ore known as Kuvain. This used to be pretty worthless, but has recently in the last few years become valuable enough to make mining operations viable. Some enterprising individuals have discovered that Tehillim is rich in this ore. The Ophili Mining Corps, actually a ten-man operation with a big-sounding name, have set up a small mine and hired the PCs as security and handymen. The mine is set directly in the overlapping territory of two tribes that share animosity towards each other and both want payment from the miners. The PCs are to protect the camp from angry natives, who'll steal anything not locked down, and try to negotiate an amenable set of terms with both tribes. If the party look like they're about to wipe out a tribe with modern weapons, you might consider having an Imperial patrol boat enter the system and come to investigate the mining operations. Rather than negotiating for goods with the tribes, because creds are no good to them as they don't use them, the leaders could ask for favours, which could lead the party off on some unlikely missions. Rescuing a tribal princess, for instance, or perhaps killing a dangerous predator. Maybe you can come up with a way to bring the tribes together so everyone can live happily ever after. Whatever you do in this regard to side missions, make the mine owners demanding but fair, and make the on-site operations director a bit of a unfair ass, willing to blame the PCs for everything that goes wrong, mechanical and human. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is the segment of the show where I take a look at some aspect of the classic traveller rules. Today, I thought I'd have a quick look at laser weapons, find out what I can about them. I started off with the Book 1 from 1977. I found the rules in there matched exactly with the 81 version. During character generation, you can get a skill called Gun Combat, which you have to immediately allocate to a weapon type. And in these books, it actually says you can select either Laser Carbine or Laser Rifle, which of course means they are separate and completely different skills. It also goes on to say that lasers make no sound so you can fire them from an ambush and keep surprise. Apparently lasers are also too light for bludgeoning as you can't use them as a club. 
You might want to add in here your own personal breakage rule. If somebody tries to use a laser weapon to bludgeon an opponent, you could perhaps give them a 10 plus chance of it breaking. The laser carbine also has a battery that can handle 50 shots. The weapon itself is 5 kilograms and the battery only 3 kilograms, and it does up to 4 dice of damage. The rifle appears to be an improved version. It has 100 shots, weighs 6 kilograms, and its battery weighs 4 kilograms. It hasn't doubled the size of the battery to get twice as many shots. The damage from the rifle is, for some reason, 5 dice. The power units between the carbine and the rifle are not interchangeable, so that suggests there is some sort of different technology there. For defence against laser weapons, there are basically two options. Reflect, which can be tailored into clothing and basically reflects the energy of the laser weapon, costs around 1,500 credits, which seems rather high. And the second option is Ablat, which vaporises when it's hit by an energy weapon. This is considerably cheaper, costing only 75 credits. It seems that people in the Imperium don't really like laser weapons, as at law level 2 or higher they're banned. The carbine itself is available at tech level 8, the rifle at tech level 9. There is a slight change in the rules once you get to book 4, Mercenary. In there it describes gun combat as allowing you to select laser weapons, the multiple, which covers both carbine and rifle. The same is repeated in the High Guard book, suggesting that the core rules have been modified at some point from being individual skills into being a combined skill, there not being a lot of difference between them. The Mercenary book also introduces another defence from laser weapons. At tech level 8 or above, you have anti-laser aerosols. The unit weighs 1 kilogram, costs 10 credits, and lasts for 8 rounds. I tend to think of this, although no real description is given, but I think of it as a grenade type affair. You throw it and it explodes rather like a smoke grenade, spraying out this anti-laser aerosol. It dissipates the laser beam and stops it from hitting you, basically. In the High Guard rules, it says that in 0G, firing a laser gives you minus 2 on the roll to not lose control of your body in that 0G. This suggests that perhaps there is some sort of recoil when you fire a laser. I find that quite strange. I do wonder if there would be an equal and opposite reaction to firing out that amount of energy. It is possible. But I wonder if perhaps it's some sort of coolant release system. Some coolant gets blasted out to keep the barrel or the weapon itself cool, and that causes you zero-g problems. The minus two is relatively insignificant compared to the other negative modifiers. Firing a normal weapon is normally minus four or minus six, so using a Laser weapon is hardly anything in those terms. Again, it may not be down to the actual energy being ejected from the front of the weapon, but perhaps in trying to bring the weapon to bear would perhaps send you spinning through zero-g? I'm not quite sure, and the books don't make themselves clear. Ah. Damn piece of junk! Who bought this anyway? <clears throat> no, no, don't you dare say it was me. This is a review of the PDF adventure number six, Expedition to Zerdane, that's available from DriveThruRPG. The original version of this adventure was published in 1981. It's interesting to note that the adventure was lifting materials from the Journal of the Traveller's Aid Society and previous adventures. 
For example, they've dragged in the Zodani background material and ship stats. This PDF is a scan of the original book with some cleanup done for the covers. It is text searchable and there will be spoilers ahead as you might imagine. The premise of the scenario is that an imperial sociologist, while making a study of Zodani society in Zodani space, has been arrested or kidnapped. This scenario starts out with the PCs looking over the jobs pages of the local paper, a copy of which is in the book. This lists a whole series of possibilities. Each of the ads represents a small job that they can do to earn some creds. There are a couple of paragraphs dealing with each of them. However, it's all a bit of a blind, as there is really only one of the jobs that the scenario is built around, that of becoming asteroid miners. After the players have gone through the process of getting a job, they suddenly wake up having been kidnapped and stuck on an asteroid, having to work at mining in order to get food and water and air. They've been shanghaied. There's no way off of this asteroid, until they discover a drifting ship made out of a hollowed asteroid. On the ship is the young daughter of the scientist, who can tell the story of how she misjumped away when her father was kidnapped in Zodani space. All of these jobs and getting shanghaied, it's all basically a long lead-up so that you play through to this point where you're supposed to jump onto the scenario and help rescue that person. The proposed idea is that the PCs discover the ship and provision it and make their escape from their captors and go rescue the girl's father. However, I'd fully expect the players in my games to space the girl and take the ship. Assuming your players are, or rather their PCs, are more humane, you have the option to go and find and rescue this scientist. But that's where things seem to go a bit screwy. There's no information about what's happened to the scientist. You don't have any information about who, where, why and how. That's up for the referee to make up. When I'd finished reading through this 52-page PDF, I sat back and wondered what the heck it's supposed to be about. You have details for two subsectors, ship stats, deck plans, background material on Zodani society and stats for a few interesting characters, but no central thread. And what there is, is focused on the scientist. Yet there's no details of how to rescue the scientist or even where he is. This is way more than an adventure sea, but it's not enough for a fully-fledged adventure. It's in a strange space in between those two poles. I think there is a lot of seed material here. The job sheet could give you plenty of sessions of fun for down-on-their-luck PCs trying to find a break. But they're not really anything more than ideas for scenarios. The core of the story, the kidnapped PCs finding and escaping in the asteroid ship, is great. The ship plans and the subsectors and the background material on Zodani are all great. But in the end, I felt it was only a half-finished scenario. Despite all of these problems, I can tell you that I enjoyed reading this. There's a lot of good background material here and the asteroid ship is very cool. And it would be an excellent base for a traveller group. So if you have cash spare, go and get it. But go in knowing it's not a complete scenario, but rather a core idea of a campaign. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where I tell you about another strange creature from across the Imperium. Today, things get a little fluffy. The Fluffter is a carefully bred pet animal 
that has spread across the full reach of the Imperium. It is a small quadrupedal rodent. There are many breeds of the animal in varying colours, and this colour variation is purely cosmetic and not a survival trait. Indeed, it has been suggested that the fluffter would not be capable of surviving in the wild, but more of that shortly. A fully grown adult fluffter is no more than six inches long in the body, although its furry tail can add up to another three inches. It has teeth and claws, but represents no threat whatsoever to a human. It is omnivorous, but its meat-eating is restricted to small and tiny insects rather than meat. The original world on which the fluffter was found has long been lost in human history, but it can now be found right across the Imperium. Its natural habitat, as such, is in a cage. That is to say, it is entirely bred as a pet with a special aptitude to space travel. The fluffter is often kept by those that travel in the vacuum for a living and provides friendship and amusement and company to those in transit between systems. As a pet, the fluffter is exemplary. It is quiet, takes up very little space, and its dietary and hygiene needs are minimal. It is diurnal and active for much of its waking hours. They are easy to handle and rarely bite. They're allowed in limited numbers aboard many naval vessels at the discretion of the ship's captain, and even some ex-boat pilots have been known to sneak a fluffter aboard. The reason the fluffter is allowed this special dispensation on board ship is that they were bred for the purpose, and one particular trait bred into them to make them amenable to shipboard life. They find a particular high-pitched sound irresistible. Thus, should the animal escape its cage, it can be quickly recaptured and returned to captivity. It has been commonly thought that the fluffter could not survive on any planet in the wild, and indeed many experiments at introducing them have repeatedly failed. However, on one planet, they do live in the wild. The planet Ithian is currently undergoing a terraforming process, and already has the lower forms of edible flora taking a foothold, along with the necessary insectoid life. During a visit by an Imperial ship, one of the crew released a number of flufters just to see what would happen. This was not part of the terraforming program, nor even an Imperial experiment, but rather the curiosity of a private individual. When the ship returned a year later for official inspection, they also discovered that the flufters had survived and even bred. Although many generations of flufters must have come and gone while the ship was away, the flufters showed no natural fear of humans or human equipment. A tertiary study was made and it was discovered that the flufters were living on a predominant insectoid diet and in the absence of any natural predator were able to survive and even to do well. The study of this flufter colony is now a matter of official process. However, the records show that the colony may have retarded the terraforming process by a number of years, and so after completion of a five-year study, it is planned to exterminate the unusual colony. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're cold? The spacer in the corner booth. Oh, don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? There are thousands of channels. Crookwatch. Today's person of interest has been sent in by George Quayle. He tells me that this character is currently residing on his player's bounty list. So, first come, first served. 
Few people's star has risen and fallen to such extremes as Bremno Kahn. In the space of just over 20 years, he's gone from being a simple student to being a multi-millionaire businessman onto a wanted criminal. Born on the industrial planet of Fornorb in the Magyar sector, Bremno's family were of Soleimani descent and squarely middle class, no noble blood or powerful connections, but a very comfortable life. After leaving school, Bremno went to a major university where he studied economics and business management. Graduating with honours, he returned to his home city and quickly got employment as junior management for a local manufacturing facility. His university record had attracted off-world attention, and soon he was visited by Delgado Trading, a major megacore with interests across his sector. Lured by a large pay packet and the promise of interplanetary travel, he left for Norb and took his first megacore posting, manager of a petrochemical plant on a hell world. With a fresh pair of eyes and some sharp thinking, he introduced some new automation procedures that managed to keep productivity level while reducing the staff numbers. While the staff weren't happy to see some of their number made redundant, the company directors were thrilled that profit margins were increasing. Bremno continued to make leaps in the corporate hierarchy, using his clout to take on greater priority projects within the company and leaving behind him success after success. After a decade and a half, he had been promoted to chief financial officer for the sector and was a very wealthy man. His mega credit wealth wasn't enough for him, however, and further promotion without being a part of the old patrician bloodlines seemed all but impossible. He watched others he viewed as less intelligent and competent than him get promoted because of their family connections, and grew increasingly bitter at how much higher their income was than his, despite their business skills being decidedly mediocre. Eventually, Bremno decided he would recoup the money that he felt he was owed by any means necessary. He set up fake project codes and contracts on the account system, using his authority as chief financial officer to sign off imaginary invoices without question from outside sources. Using these fake accounts to quietly skim away money off Delgado's accounts, he embezzled millions of credits into a variety of bank accounts, all of which were ultimately in his control. No matter how smart his plan was, however, it couldn't escape detection forever. A Delgado auditor, confused by the high quantity of new projects Bremno's department was approving, realised something was up, and they secretly notified the Megacore's head office of their suspicions. After an investigation by Delgado agents revealed the scale of the financial irregularities, immediate action was taken. Bremno Khan's employment was terminated, his corporate assets were frozen, and armed operatives were dispatched to his house to arrest him. A tip-off from a friend within head office, however, meant that Bremno was not at home when the agents arrived. As they broke down his door, he was already several cities away and booking clandestine package on a private liner using a cover identity. Not all of his money was in his corporate account, and it's believed that he would have had more than enough funds to pay to escape and try to set up a new life on the planet of his choosing. Bremno Khan is still wanted by several different authorities. Planetary Police and Delgado agents for his embezzlement and the Imperial Port Authority for his chartering a craft with fraudulent identity papers. A bounty was put on his head by the Port Authority of over 20,000 credits, if he can be returned to custody, 
with rumours suggesting this may be raised further to encourage more attention on the case. Delgado Trading, despite their deep coffers, have not offered a bounty of their own, or assisted the police in their inquiries. It seems they'd rather deal with it internally, perhaps worrying that if Mr. Khan faces a civil trial, he may reveal things about Delgado to the general public that they'd rather not share. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end game. But before signing off, I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you that I've recently published a traveller product on drive-thru RPG called Decopedia Volume 1, which contains a mix of things, namely descriptions of 10 planets, 10 alien animals, 10 people of interest, and 10 story seeds. As you might have already guessed, the majority of these things are the text version of what you've already heard in this podcast, but with a few original segments thrown in. Just like the podcast, it's a bank of ideas for a referee to pull from as needed, for direct use or for inspiration. It's also a good way for you to support the podcast. And as usual, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, segment items or stories, please send them in to BehindTheClaw at Outlook.com This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Its home on the web is at BehindTheClaw.blogspot.co.uk Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com I'm your host, Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for Jump.